Welcome to Faith Restructured. I'm Cole. And I'm Mike. Here we cover topics on faith, deconstruction, and reconstruction. We discuss books that have helped us through the process, and we'll interview some friends and experts along the way. Let's jump into today's episode. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Faith Restructured. It is Mike here, all alone, for another monologue. So if you don't want to hear my voice alone, here's your chance to uh, check out some new music. But with that being said, I uh, wanted to share a little bit about what I've been thinking about um, in this season of life. I've got a lot of different things going on right now, um, and I just began my final semester of seminary, so I'm kind of gearing up and putting myself back into the school mindset. We're gearing up for new things happening um, at the church that I work at and trying to navigate all kinds of things uh, simultaneously. I recognize that much of my life is about learning how to uh, do a lot of things at the same time or multitask or put on different hats. And I, I don't think that's unique to Mike Kramer. I think that's something we all experience, right? Maybe you're a parent and a spouse and a sibling and a child and you are you know working your job or you serve in the community like you have different identities that all are related but not necessarily the same sometimes it can get really exhausting trying to navigate how those different things overlap and i think when we feel most complete is when we feel we can be fully ourselves in every context we find ourselves in um as I've been thinking about how I balance those different uh, identities, I've realized that there are some very similar themes going on in all of those places. And um, I guess today I could be talking about things in their identity, which is one of my favorite writings by uh, Thomas Merton, since I'm using identity language and I recommend you all check that out. But I've been thinking more in the context of, uh, ministry and studying scripture or studying theology in a more academic setting and how those things are often put into tension with one another. So uh, Cole and I both in undergrad studied, you know, biblical studies, theology, youth ministry, uh, especially, and often the dichotomy, or, and I would say the false dichotomy created is the idea that you're either going to be really, really good at ministry stuff and really not smart and you don't know too much, or you'll be really, really good at the academic side, and you might know Greek and Hebrew, and you might know 17 interpretations of one passage, but you're not really good at the person-to-person skills that are required for doing ministry with people. And I just don't think those two things have to be opposites. I understand why you can become uh, hyper-focused on one or the other, but I think learning how to be fully immersed in what, I don't know, ministry is, there's a couple things, right? So there's a a quote, I think we've talked about here on the podcast before, just about how, you know, if you are thinking about not wanting to go into full-time ministry, but you already identify as a follower of Jesus, like tough, like you're already called to a life of ministry. We need to understand that, like, we, we sometimes esteem people that work 
in a uh, more technical ministry role, whether it's a church or a parachurch or something related, like they're higher than the others. And certainly you have taken on that role and there comes with it responsibility, but all of us have been called to live lives of ministry. But I, I think that that also involves us pursuing truth and pursuing knowledge and studying and learning um, in a more serious sense than just showing up, I guess. And some people that looks like studying books and some people it means paying very careful attention to life in ways that other people aren't good at. I think about like a poet's ability to make um, sense of the beauty in everyday mundane experiences that most people can't. That's really important work that we need someone to do because not all of us are gifted in that. We need some people that are skilled at, um, I don't know, the hard work of translation or rigorous study. We need some people that are really good at um, sitting with people in in conversation and learning how to uh, help them unpack what they feel or what they think. And yet, we have our specialties, but we need to learn how both to learn from one another's abilities just on their own, right? But also learn some of those skills ourselves. Not that we're ever going to be, you know, over the top competent at every single form of what it means to live life to the fullest, but also we learn from the poet how to look for those beautiful things. We learn from the person that's immensely good at studying or the academic side of life, how to like derive meaning from uh, a lot of information at once. We learn from one another every day if we choose to. So with all that being said, as I think about the, the tension between being a student and uh, being in a more academic setting right now, and balancing that with being in practical church ministry in a very uh, stereotypical sense, I've always strived to not um, sacrifice one for the other. Like I want to always process information in a way that's meaningful uh, so that I can actually give that back to someone else. Um, and so one of my favorite uh, pieces of writing, favorite authors, if you haven't guessed yet, it's Lewis. Um, in Mere Christianity, he has this book that is separated into four smaller books. So the first three of those books um, in Mere Christianity were all originally delivered as radio broadcasts during World War II. Um, but the fourth book he added to the print version. And uh, a lot of his friends and colleagues told him it was a bad idea. I mean, the title of the fourth book is Beyond Personality, First Steps in the Doctrine of the Trinity. He was like, yeah, uh, that's a little intense. Maybe not everyone wants to read about that. And yet we recognize that as Christians, the Trinity is one of the things that make us very unique um, in our like beliefs about God. And it's very paradoxical. So he was like, you know what? Like you're not children. I don't want to treat you as children. I want to invite you to begin to think about these things and how they impact our world. Um, now I'm not going to you know, summarize this whole chapter, but he uses an analogy here that I think is very important about important for the way we understand the world, what we say about God, what we say when we talk about God, um, and what we mean with the title of this podcast, Faith Restructured. Um, so I'm just going to read a little bit of this so that we can set up the conversation. 
Uh, he talks about this conversation he had with a guy that said, I'm a religious man. I know there's a God. I felt him out alone in the desert night. There was tremendous mystery. And that's just why I don't believe in all your le- neat little dogmas and formulas about him. To anyone who's met the real thing, God, they all those dogmas seem so petty and pedantic and unreal. So now this is Lewis talking. He said, in a real sense, I, I agree with that man. I think he had probably um, the most real experience of God in the desert. And when he turned from that experience to the Christian creeds and dogmas, I think he really was turning from something true and real to something less real. And in the same way, uh, if a man has once looked at the Atlantic from the beach and then goes to look at the map of the Atlantic Ocean, he'll also be turning from something real to something less real, turning from real waves to a bit of color on paper. But here's the point. The map is admittedly only colored paper, but there are two things that you have to remember about it. First, it's based on what hundreds of thousands of people have found by sailing the real Atlantic Ocean. In that way, it has behind it masses of experience just as real as the one you could have had only from the beach. Only while yours would be a single glimpse from a certain day or certain structure of days, the map fits all those different experiences together. In the second place, if you want to go anywhere, the map is absolutely necessary. As long as you're content with walks on the beach, your own glimpses are far more fun than looking at a map. But the map is going to be more use than walks on the beach if you really want to get to uh, another country. Theology is like a map. Merely learning and thinking about the Christian doctrines, if you stop there, it is so far less real and less exciting than the sort of thing my friend got in the desert. Doctrines are not God. They're only a kind of map. But the map is based on the experience of hundreds of people who really were in touch with God. Experiences compared with uh, with which any thrills or pious feelings you and I are likely to get on our own are actually very elementary and confused. And if you want to get any further, you must learn to use the map. What happened to the man in the desert may have been real, and that was certainly exciting, but nothing comes of it necessarily. It doesn't lead somewhere. There's nothing to do about it. In fact, that's just why a vague religion, all about feeling God and nature and so on, is so attractive. It's all thrills and no work, like watching the waves from the beach. Um, So, uh, and he goes on to talk about why theology is practical, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, this imagery of theology is a map, right? I think this is a really helpful way to distinguish how as individuals we experience God and how those experiences all do culminate into something more important too. Uh, that yes, we can all experience God in very unique ways, very real ways uh, to be clear, but that our experience of God is limited. Like right now we are one out of 7 billion people on earth experiencing uh, the divine on some level in some place, because I, I believe God is active in all places. Uh, whether or not we have the uh, awareness to sense how he is working in our uh, context. But when we look at the uh, culmination of all these experiences, uh, there there is something to be gained. And this is, again, going back to the language of tradition versus traditionalism, like something that's alive, something that's dead. Um, the faith that's been passed down to us is part of this idea of the map. 
Now, I, I know Lewis is uh, far smarter than uh, just the piece I just read here, but it's important to note that it's not like there's ever been one fixed map, one fixed set of dogmas or doctrines or whatever. In fact, some of the language we use to talk about God is very limited. It's very loaded. Um, and I'm the thing that kind of spurred me into thinking about this stuff that I think would be meaningful to you all is the conversation we have with Justin McRoberts, which um, uh, something that Justin said during that interview was that, you know, I'm all about good theology, but if your theology makes you a worse person, I'm not interested in it. I think that's really interesting. Um, and I think it's really important for us to unpack uh, and, and think more about and not just trust my words, but you also think about it. Um, when we say good theology, uh, that's obviously a biased decision, right? There are three major sects of Christianity. There's Catholicism, there's Protestantism, and often we leave out the third sect, which is technically the oldest, I suppose, which would be Orthodoxy. Before Protestants and Catholics split, Catholics, Roman Catholics split from the Orthodox. That's the, the original split of East and West. Now, within each of those three major branches of Christianity, there are very significant convictions and beliefs and approaches to the divine. I mean, we don't even have the same Bible between all three, but we do identify in the realm of world religions as the same world religion, Christianity, not Judaism, not Islam, not Hinduism or Buddhism, but Christianity. And yet we can't even agree on scripture. Between those three uh, major sects, we can't agree on what it means to be a saint. Um, some people would say, okay, well, all Christians are saints. All believers are saints. Sure, we can find scripture that affirms that. But, you know, in the Orthodox and Roman Catholic traditions, saint is a title that is given to someone very specifically. So there's layers to what it means to be a saint. Uh, when we talk about prayer, I mean, Protestants perspective of praying with the saints is very um, problematic and unfair and straw men versions of how the Orthodox and Catholics talk about praying with the saints or venerating um, these people of, of our faith. When we say that we believe that people are alive in Christ, even if they've died on earth, uh, do we believe they're still active? Um, there are all kinds of ideas that we take for granted as, oh, this is just theological doctrine that we've already figured out, but we've already trusted other people to figure out for us, right? So uh, typically, you know, when you're in your teenage years, you just kind of accept simple things and, and you begin to question it. But up to that point, you've just accepted like, oh, this is what it means to be an athlete. This is what it means to be part of the team. This is what it means to... Uh, be popular in school. This is what it means to be part of this particular church or denomination or title as a Christian, right? But when you start to ask questions and dig a little deeper, it turns out that things are not as clear as they seem. There's a lot of different parts of this map, a lot of different kinds of map, a lot of different um, choices on where exactly to draw the boundaries of sand to ocean. And if we want to keep, you know, beating this uh, this analogy dead. The reality is like the landscape changes over time, whether that's ocean levels rising or falling or temperatures changing or how, how far does the, the, do the waves recede uh, during this hundred year span? Like 
there are changes to how we've understood scripture and doctrine and faith over time. And that to me does not mean we throw out everything that's come before. We certainly need to take seriously that Mike Kramer is one human being right now, hopefully for a, I don't know, 70 to 90 year old span of human experience, but that's part of a 2000 plus year old span of millions upon millions of experiences of this faith, of this God, of this reality. And yes, my experience matters, but it also, like, if I take seriously the idea that other people have also experienced this God, I should be seriously listening to how they have with generosity and empathy and, and openness. Now, that doesn't mean anything goes, I don't think, personally. But I also don't think it means that you have it all figured out and you never listen. Sometimes we, I think we all believe we're far more open-minded than we are. I don't believe that's the case. And I think what Justin had his, uh, he was taking, checking the pulse of this idea and expressing it through this language, you know, good theology, good doctrines and, and a bad person. That's not something I'm interested in is actually exactly what Jesus was talking about in the gospels, you know, a tree by its fruits. And this has been a theme that I think a lot of people experiencing doubt in their faith, doubt in the preconceived notions, doubt in the former things that felt so true and yet now no longer feel so true. This all stems from a similar place of saying, hmm, I'm really struggling with the idea that for a long time, this value has been assumed as really important in faith. And yet the people that say it's important don't seem to live it out. Now, I'm not being specific in this instance because I think all of us can fill in that gap. When there's a a blanket statement idea about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how all these other doctrines are bad or heretical. And yet the people that say that actually don't really um, live lives that we believe are worth emulating in our own, not really living lives that seem worth following, not because it's inconvenient to us. Certainly that's a, a, a problem and, and a possibility that we just want easier lives that don't take the hard route. But that's pretty cynical. And that's also straw manning people that are struggling to figure out what is the meaning of living this life well. I believe more often than not, what's happening is people look around and they see the maps that other louder voices are proclaiming as true of what it means to be followers of Jesus. And they're not too interested in the picture it's painting of the world, not because it makes life more inconvenient, but because it doesn't reflect good fruit. Jesus was living amongst these teachers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes. That's a group that's really, really important. E-S-S-E-N-E-S. Um, but they're not specifically named in scripture, but you could argue that they're actually alluded to in multiple places. But again, that's in biblical studies world. But Jesus is living amongst these scholars, these teachers, these religious elites that have all the right dogma, all the right doctrine, all the right boundary markers. And yet they got it wrong. In fact, Jesus kind of shows up on the scene 
And and you have to wonder like how frustrating it must have been to be those people who I believe probably set out with great intentions, with great calls on their lives to be leaders that have set their like they've they've set themselves apart. Like they've given up all kinds of pleasures in life because they thought this was the calling. Like they spent a lot of their free time instead of playing stickball studying scripture and learning it inside and out just for some other teacher to come on the scene and say, oh yeah, you know that law you memorized? It said, don't do work on the Sabbath. It's more loose than you think. Huh. You know, when it talks about being unclean and whatnot, well, you know, it's all right if they didn't wash their hands before they ate. You know, this law that literally says this, you missed the whole subtext under that that actually meant not that. It's got to be so immensely frustrating, and I worry how often we default to the map that someone else has handed us blindly because we're too scared to work out our own faith with fear and trembling. Now, I don't think that that means we are all islands, as John Donne would put it, all in isolation, reading our Bible on our own. You know how I feel about that if you've listened to any of our episodes up to this point. But rather, we need to work out how does our experience in Lewis's uh, story, our experience of God, the divine, on our own, fit into the larger story we've seen, the larger map that's been passed down. When we say that God is all-powerful, where do we get that notion? And how does that make sense of the world around you? This is where the debates about something like predestination come around. All Christians believe in predestination because that's a word used in scripture. If you believe in scripture, you believe in predestination. Uh, So that's an important thing. But do you believe in universalism? Do you believe in double predestination? Do you believe in Arminianism? So brief definitions. Universalism is the belief that God has predestined all people to be in heaven at some point. Maybe there is a span of the afterlife in eternity where you're not in heaven, but eventually you will be. That's universalism because it's built on the idea that God is love. Now, there are some pros and cons to that view that are very scriptural. Then you've got Arminianism, which is what most Protestants, I would say, believe. The idea that you have the choice. God has chosen to give you this free gift, but you have to choose to take it. There are clear places in scripture that are pros and cons to this belief. And then you've got double predestination, which is sadly referred to as Calvinism. I think that's really unfair for a number of reasons. But this is the idea that God has predestined some people in the afterlife to be in heaven and some people to be in hell, period. And Calvin did talk about this view. And it comes from some very specific places in scripture that seem to imply something along these lines. There are pros and cons to this view with all three perspectives. And these are not the only perspectives I'd imagine, but these are the three major schools of thought about predestination, the afterlife. There are pros and cons to all of them. There are scriptural passages, you know, alluded to by very, very, very important thinkers of our time that are appealing to each of these places because they're trying to take scripture seriously, but they're also trying to take their experience of God seriously. They're trying to take the notions and the teachings of Jesus seriously when Jesus says things like, you know, God has sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, 
right? This is John 3. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, not willing that any should perish, but all should have eternal life. If God is God, does God get what God wants in the end? Well, there's all kinds of things wrapped up in this. This is the tension of, of balancing our personal experience of the divine with the map. It's our experience of the beach, your favorite beach. Imagine it now, whether it's, you know, on the East Coast or the West Coast of the United States, or it's in Europe, your one favorite trip you took there, or it's one of the, you know, Caribbean islands, you know, wherever it is, picture your favorite experience of the beach. Maybe you're body surfing or you're snorkeling, or you're just sitting on the sand watching beauty unfold before your eyes and your experience of it. And that's really, really, really important and it's valid. But Think of the, all the people that were on that same beach before you and had other experiences of it. Maybe they were there on a terrible day and it was not so beautiful. Maybe they were there after you know the reefs were destroyed. Maybe they were there and there was a shark attack. Maybe they were there. Things were just different. And that's just in your lifetime. Think about 10,000 years worth of people on that exact beach. And then think of all the beaches in the world. There's so many experiences to put together into how we understand the ocean, how we understand getting around. And those experiences are all culminated in the idea of something like a globe or a map so that we can not only make sense of the reality, but that we can we can learn from it, that we can accomplish something as a result of it. And Lewis's analogy that'd be traveling. Think about what we're supposed to accomplish as human beings made in the image of God. In scripture, we're supposed to find God in our lives, to live lives that are pleasing to God. We're supposed to build the kingdom here. We're supposed to join Jesus in the work of building the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus tells us about the Beatitudes, when he tells us, you know, all these analogies or metaphors, I always mix those up, but of what the kingdom of God is like, when he tells us the ethics of the kingdom, that the last will be first, when he tells us these things in scripture, these are the places that we should be allowing to shape our faith. It doesn't mean we don't take seriously all of the other parts of scripture. It doesn't mean that we don't take seriously the tensions we find with certain parts of the Bible, with other parts of the Bible, and developments in human society. Jesus didn't talk about artificial intelligence. And very soon we'll be having all kinds of pastors and churches talk about uh, the efficacy, the ethics, and the theology of AI. I'm sure it's coming. And it's because we're trying to contextualize scripture for now. We're trying to contextualize what Jesus did and said for now. And, and when we think about what it means to doubt some of the answers we've been given, some of the specifics about the particular map of your particular church and your particular denomination of your particular branch of Christianity, the reason people question is because they are trying to take seriously what they've been seeing on this map, what they've been told about the map, and what they're actually living and experiencing. Now, in light of our conversation with Shane Claiborne, I'll say this as one example. Uh, I'm not saying someone taught me this overtly, but definitely this was instilled in me at some point in my life. And maybe it was just the subliminal 
uh, beliefs that people projected. But as a kid, I assumed homeless people were homeless because they were lazy. If they were really, you know, willing to work, they would work hard and save up and it would be hard at first, but they'd be able to make it out. But anyone that that learns about the plight of poverty and the poverty cycle and the evils of homelessness, not just in our country, but around the world, know that's not true. Certainly, that might be one person's experience, but when you put it next to the experience, not only of all the people experiencing poverty and homelessness right now, today, but over hundreds and thousands of years, you realize this is far deeper than we ever thought. There are real problems that the rest of us can help to solve. And yet some people still live in the mentality that, man, you could fix that problem if you wanted to. And we like that idea. We like the idea that we are all the masters of our own fate. That's something very prevalent in modern society. And yet that's not necessarily something that is the focal point of our faith in Christianity. It's hard to um, balance a hyper-individualistic perspective of life and the world with the immensely communal faith we see all throughout Christian history and scripture. These are important things for us to take seriously. This is one of my favorite um, analogies that Lewis uses because I'm someone that really, really enjoys exploring Christian doctrine, thinking about how the, the early church mothers and fathers in the first few centuries wrestled with some of these ideas. And I'm also interested in how someone like John Calvin has, has talked about these ideas, someone whose views we've reduced to the conversation around predestination. And yet, I also think it's really important for us not to get lost in doctrine to the point where we're no longer capable of seeing someone else's humanity, of seeing someone else's struggle, of seeing someone else's questions and taking them seriously. Our obsession with answering questions, our obsession with, with it not being able to admit that we don't have all the answers, it's very concerning to me. It's more concerning to me when I see it in myself. Our ability to affirm people's experiences is deeply, deeply important to the life of faith. If your gut reaction when someone tells you about what they're going through or what they're experiencing or what they're seeing is, well, I hear what you're saying, but here's why you're wrong. I, I challenge you to consider how wrong you might be. Consider the reasons you might believe you are right at all costs. We view ourselves as the main character in the story of life, but God is the primary agent and character in creation. We join God in God's story. Doesn't mean our stories don't matter, but they aren't the focal point. We aren't perfect. Our maps aren't perfect. We are learning daily what it means to follow and to follow well so that our trees might produce good fruit. And so whether you're someone that feels like you're wrestling with doubts right now, or you're someone that's knowing people in your life wrestling with doubts, my challenge to you is to just be present 
and to listen and to think carefully about how your words and your actions are impacting those around you in their own wrestlings with faith. There's a reason why wrestling with God is a really prevalent image in some stories in scripture. I don't think it's just for uh, the word picture because it makes for a good children's Sunday school lesson. I think that might be one of the most accurate pictures of what it means to take God seriously is to wrestle all night and we're never the same after it. That's all I have for you guys in this monologue this week. I hope you are able to um, find rest this weekend. I will be very busy personally. Uh, I challenge you to think about where you might be missing uh, God's intervention in your life. Where might God be speaking uh, that you haven't noticed? Go in peace.